Hello and welcome to the Auto Movie Podcast. I'm Chris Ratcliffe and I'm with Martin Spain and in this show we discuss cars, in films and generally geek out about all things automotive in movies and TV. Today we're going to be looking at Formula One mainstream documentaries. But first, this week saw the new Top Gear trailer drop. This is the new lineup of Chris Harris, Paddy McGuinness and Freddie Flintoff and it was a one minute long montage of what we can expect from the new lineup. Martin, what did you think? Meh. <laughs> I am worried that this is just going to be three lads having fun, being lads, and with some tangential car content. And I've realised that sounds exactly like old Top Gear with Clarkson, Hammond and May, but theirs was rooted in a deep love for the automobile. However silly their stuff got from the trailer it feels like some producer just went right what can we do that gets these three into the kind of mischief you would expect some 19 year old lads out on a stag do would do i know exactly what you mean i've been re-watching some of the old chris harris rory and matt leblanc episodes and features and i think it all comes down to chemistry and it all comes down to them trying to find their own feet and I can't not watch, but I'm I'm really, really hoping it's as much fun as it looks like they have making it. That's the thing. You're right about chemistry. If they have chemistry, it almost doesn't matter that it's a bit laddish and maybe cars have taken more of a backseat. If they've got chemistry, it's going to work. I feel it's a teeny bit of a shame Chris Harris was getting good chemistry with Matt LeBlanc towards the end of that show's run. They never seemed to gel as a trio. They tried to force it, and in that last series, they just cut Rory Reid out altogether. If it's the chemistry that works, then perhaps it's going to be a big hit. I don't know. We'll wait and see. We've also had announcements of two new documentaries in the works. The first one is a documentary simply called Schumacher, looking at the life and work of Michael Schumacher done by the same production team who did a documentary about Boris Becker and it's got the blessing of his family, his management, it's got their involvement and I'm looking forward to it. I think it could be a good living tribute for somebody who's vanished off the F1 scene a bit, um, obviously in horrific, tragic circumstances. But I think it's nice to have a film like this in the works while he's still with us, frankly. I'm really hoping it won't be an obituary if you see what I mean. Yeah, I think that's fair. He never made himself available to the UK press or the UK Formula One um, journalists that did TV work. So we really haven't seen much of Michael Schumacher outside of the competitive environment. He just closed himself off to that. So this is probably going to be full of home movie stuff, early stuff from his time doing Le Mans with Mercedes. There could be tons of really great stuff in here um, and a reminder that he was once an amazing racing driver. And we've also seen, particularly recently, though, there was a big uh, exhibition of Michael Schumacher's cars and helmets and race suits, and there's still a lot of affection for him. And I think the fact that this is under the guardianship of his management and his family, hopefully they will sort of open up their archives a bit more as well and they can give their blessing to bring other people. So it'll be interesting to see how that how that comes out. I think that comes out later this year. And around the time of the British Grand Prix, there's an intriguing new documentary called Heroes, 
which I think both of us, we're not sure if we've actually seen the trailer for it, which isn't a good start. It's a documentary that brings together four motorsport heroes, Mick Hakkinen, Felipe Massa, Tom Christensen, and World Rally Championship runner-up Michel Mouton, and it brings them together over dinner with the kind of overarching theme, again, of their involvement with Michael Schumacher. And if you look at the poster that's been uh, publicised, it's the outline of Michael Schumacher with all these people inside his silhouette, which seems a, a bit weird. It's been commissioned by the Motorsport Network, who own Autosport and F1 Racing and all sorts of forums and, and TV channels. And it's written by Manish Pandey, who did Senna, who wrote Senna as much as anyone wrote Senna. And he's talked in the press releases about setting up plot twists and about interweaving these people's stories together, which really, I, I don't know what to make of that. That baffles me. I think you could maybe weave Hakkinen and Massa together as two drivers who were injured very badly at the racetrack, but I don't believe that fits with Tom Christensen. Um, it definitely doesn't fit with Michel Mouton. I, I don't know what to make of this. It seems presumptuous to call it heroes. I think these people might be heroes to many motorsport fans, but are they the kind of change the world of motorsport heroes? Did they do heroic things? And I don't think any of them did. There's no Jackie Stewart campaign for safety type hero work. I don't know how to put it. It makes me feel a little bit like, hmm, where are they going with this? And the publicity still for it has the four of them sitting round a dinner table in a English stately home having dinner, which in itself, given that you've got four personalities who are all quite different and have all got really impressive racing CVs. I mean, Tom Christensen alone, you could probably just listen to him talk for an hour or two. That's promising. They're all very articulate people. I've heard Felipe Massa on the Beyond the Grid F1 podcast this week, and he's excellent. He's a really interesting figure to hear speak. Mika Hakkinen has opened himself up since retirement. He's interesting to listen to. Tom Christensen, extremely articulate. Michelle Mouton, I don't know, but she's a very public figure, used to public speaking, organises the Race of Champions, first president of the FIA's Women and Motorsport Commission. She's a big figure in motorsport, one of the biggest female figures, if not the biggest female figure. So there could be great stuff here. But it's that title that bothers me. If it was called, I don't know, Dinner with Motorsport Aces, which is less pithy. Dinner with Motorsport Aces sounds like a net, an original Netflix series. And I think that could be really fun. It's, it's almost like comedians in cars getting coffee. It's, you know, Jason Plato in a, at a burger van on the A38 talking motorsport. Does what it says on the tin. That's my kind of show. Just before we finish up on that, the release for this has been slated around July, so it'll tie in with the British Grand Prix. There was talk of a cinematic release, but it'll certainly be out through the Motorsport Network sites, and I'm sure it'll be available all over the internet when that comes out. So moving on to the theme for today's show, Formula One mainstream documentaries. And I think given that we're just past the 25th anniversary of May the 1st, 1994. I think there was only one we could have really opened with, Martin. 
Yeah, this is 2010's movie Senna, which we mentioned earlier on. A biography of Senna's Formula One life. It, it leaves out anything before Formula One, so there's no mention of his karting exploits, there's no mention of his Formula Three career that got him into Formula One. It opens in 1984 with Senna and Monaco in the rain, a very famous uh, virtuoso performance that announced him as a special talent in Formula One. And it closes with his last race in May 1994 at Imola, where he lost his life. And it illustrates a potted history of his Formula One career in between those two points. Iris saw this, I think, either at the premiere in London or very shortly afterwards. I remember there was a Q&A with uh, quite a few people involved in the documentary with the director, uh, with the writer Manish Pandey and... I think they had a few other names from the motorsport world. Martin Brundle may well have been there. Mark Blundell. Um, and I remember being blown away by it because they had got access to Bernie's archives. The FOM archives of all the stuff you didn't see. And it's full of great content, great gems that you've never seen before. And you've certainly never seen them on the big screen. It's brilliantly edited. It takes the approach of not giving you any talking heads. There is commentary from both the past and occasionally journalists will do voiceovers but they never cut to anybody in the present day um, they try and tell the whole story through archive footage and it works astonishingly well i can't remember if it won an oscar for editing but it may well have been nominated i don't think it was nominated for an oscar at all i think it was one of the great shocks that it didn't uh, didn't get nominated that's very surprising i think it may have got a bafta or an emmy or something because the the editing on it is a work of art to go through that much footage and construct any kind of coherent narrative without relying on a narrator or uh, lots of voiceovers and title cards and so on. They do lean on some commentators and journalists, but there are very select few. Richard Williams, um, who is a well-known UK Formula One journalist, provides a lot of background, as do a couple of other journalists, one from the, the US. Um, but they don't get access to quite a few names you'd expect to hear. I think because everyone was a little suspicious of the project at the start and they weren't able to get people interested possibly or everyone just steered away because they thought it might be exploitative in some way. They had the blessing of the Senna family. Senna's sister Vivian was involved and, and made sure that they did right by it and I think in, in her eyes and they got a bunch of family archive footage as a result which really interweaves between Formula One seasons because this is a tale of seasons. You see the 1984 performance in Monaco then a very small sliver of him at Lotus in 1985 winning an Estoril first ever Formula One win. They gloss over the somewhat questionable tactics Senna used to get out of his Tolman contract in 1984 and move to Lotus. They don't mention that he blocked Derek Warwick from joining him at Lotus. They then forget about Lotus altogether and the next thing you know, blink and you'll miss it, it's 1988. And the, the sort of intervening Lotus years are glossed over quickly because there were a lot of pole positions and very few race wins. So they jump ahead to 1988 the start of the famous Senna and Prost conflict that basically comes to define the middle part of the movie. And I think it's here where lots of people watching it have problems with the film. It's called Senna, it's not called Prost. And so the story tells an entirely one-sided view of what happened. It's 
Senna, the magician, doing brilliant things, and then evil calculating Prost, the Frenchman, with his mate Jean-Marie Balestre, the head of the FIA, who run Formula One, negotiating behind the scenes to do things that would put Senna at a disadvantage, to change the rules so that Senna is unable to win a championship. You miss some of the stuff that Senna did that wasn't so good, like weaving Prost nearly into the wall. They do cover him famously taking Prost out in 1990 at Suzuka, where Senna just aims his car at Prost, crashes into the side of him, first corner, race over, title over, Senna wins. There's no attempt to add any other opinions other than Senna's own one. There's no attempt to put that into context as an extremely dangerous move using your car as a weapon. It's just, it's a thing that happened. And because we've all seen how bad Prost is, it's fair, it's justified. And Senna gets his own back. Do you think there's an element of it's Senna's story told from Senna's perspective? That's exactly it, I think. They've, they've, they've tried to tell the story as if it was Senna himself telling it. I think if he had lived and maybe they were doing a documentary about his life, you might get a bit of reflection on those moments. But you, it's a very good way of putting what they've tried, the, the theme and the arc they've tried to construct. The joy of it, like I said, is, is all the footage you see a good deal of onboard of him that you may not have seen before. I think this was the point where they dug out the onboard of Senna driving around Monaco uh, and they've got a very sort of shaky, poor quality on-car cam showing how hard it is to drive that McLaren around Monaco. I think it's supposed to be Monaco 1988, but I'm fairly sure it's actually Monaco 1989 and they're passing it off as 1988. This is this is what we're going to get into here, the real geeky stuff. <laughs> I don't think any footage exists of the Magic Senna 1.4 seconds faster than Prost qualifying lap of Monaco 1988. I think they do have footage from 1989, and so when they're talking about that Magic lap, they play the 1989 footage with some very questionable edits on the audio to make it seem like he's changing gear when his hands are both on the steering wheel. <laughs> I did hear, obviously there's been a lot of a lot of talk of Senna in the past couple of months. And I don't know if this is true. I don't know if it's just myth and legend. But apparently what Senna would do when he got to the Lowe's hairpin, as I call it, if you imagine he would cross his hands completely to make the corner. And as he was accelerating with the lock on, he would then use his left hand to reach down to the right-hand side of the cockpit change into second and then start winding the lock off i can well believe it it's it, it's the kind of thing that he brought to the table i think the the other famous thing is the sort of blipping the throttle jabbing the throttle with his foot which you can actually see him doing in the onboard camera of him driving a honda nsx in suzuka mm where you've got to watch him doing it. Now, that's a naturally aspirated car, so the effect is less, but apparently the whole idea of jabbing the throttle mid-corner was to keep the boost, keep the turbo spinning, keep the boost level up so that you had less lag when you got out of the corner, um, and also, you know, push the car to the grip-slip, grip-slip, grip-slip as you go around the corner, especially for low-speed corners, you'd get more more average speed through the corner you can hear it on the audio i don't think there's ever been a pedal cam of a formula one car to show it but you hear it on the audio so it really wouldn't surprise me if he were doing really cool clever stuff like that that no one else had really thought to do it's worth mentioning i think just before the senna film came out 
Top Gear did a 15-minute tribute to Senna, which involved Hamilton driving the MP44, was it? Yep. How do you think that compared? Because obviously that's on, on YouTube. How do you think that compares to the Senna documentary? I've watched them both recently. I rewatched Senna for this podcast and then I rewatched the Top Gear thing. And honestly, for all that I've just said, Senna does an amazing job with the editing. I think the Top Gear documentary does a better job, a more rounded job of describing who Senna was as a racing driver. Because they're able to speak to his contemporaries, they have... Um, Jeremy Clarkson sits down with Martin Brundle going through some of this footage and you get Brundle who raced against Senna in Formula 3 and then again in Formula 1 he gives you a far more honest insight into what Senna was like as a racing driver not necessarily as a man but as a racing driver and they're able to show a little more of Senna's character it's a beautifully done piece it's really really well done and it works very well with the contrast between Senna himself, and then Senna's number one fan in modern F1, Lewis Hamilton, uh, looking very young and fresh-faced. This must have been 2008? 2009. So 2009, he's just won his first world title. He's still wearing a yellow helmet in tribute to his motorsport hero. And he gives you a little bit of honest insight into Lewis Hamilton, the Senna fan, when he describes how he could tell you exactly where he was when he heard that Senna died. And he's, he's, he says to Clarkson, I could take you there right now, which is just a wonderful little off-the-cuff bit of genuine Lewis Hamilton that you don't see that much now. He's much more curated in the way he presents himself. Uh, you see it every now and then, but that was just a lovely little off-the-cuff thing that gives you an insight into he's a genuinely a Senna fan. He's not doing it because he thinks you should be a Senna fan because he was a great driver. He's genuinely a fan of him, and he's so happy to drive that MP44 around Silverstone. It sounds great. It's really odd, and both it's really odd to see Lewis shoulders out of a car arm straight with a you know a straight steering wheel that isn't covered in buttons and displays it's really odd to think of him changing gear around the corners and i think there were two things that were really missing for me from senna one was the donnington lap which the producers have said that the quality just wasn't good enough and they couldn't include it which given some of the footage they included from monaco i think was probably a little bit rich the other was the lack of talking about, and I think they were probably too late to talk to Sid Watkins, because there was a great contrast with Senna, that he was a humanitarian and that he was interested in people. And we see it to an extent when he sees Martin Donnelly's crash, which is shocking when you see that up on the big screen. But one of the clips, I think, that really, even now just talking about it, sort of gives me goosebumps, is the clip of... I think Eric Comas, when he crashes in the Ligier, and they play it over the... It's in the end credits or an end montage in Senna. And he stops the car, runs over, and he's there alongside Eric. Except the story is that he talked to Sid Watkins about helping drivers and how to extract drivers and all this sort of stuff. He drove past the car. You can hear on the Top Gear feature... His foot is on the throttle. He is looks unconscious, but the engine is just absolutely wah, 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 wah. So Senna drives past, sees what's happening, runs over, switches the engine off, and then very carefully holds his head 
as Sid Watkins had shown him how to do to prevent any sort of neck or spinal injuries. And it's this one moment where you've got Senna being utterly ruthless. You've got Senna being almost absolute in his some of his convictions. I know some of the things he said, particularly in the film, have passed into law almost and mythology of, of how people should behave as racing drivers. But I think it's really sad that it misses out more of what he was like around people that needed help and what his foundation has done since and and that sort of thing. It's a great moment. I I don't mind them putting that moment back into the into the credits because you're right, I think it is it does play over the credits. I can tell you why they didn't include the the Donington lap, because that falls in nineteen ninety three and nineteen ninety three was a prost year. It doesn't fit the narrative. I think 1992 is also uh, skipped over because it doesn't fit the narrative. That was Mansell's year in the Williams. I think they may mention it in passing because they show a, a super creepy shot, which which I remember unsettled me when I saw it in the cinema, of the Williams active aero car with its active ride just sort of running through a programme and just moving around on its own, raising and lowering, and it is it's the machines have come to get you. It really... I can't describe why it affects me the way it does, but it to see a car moving of its own accord up and down and it gives me the willies i can't describe it but that's why that it's slightly arachnid that's the thing yes it's very arachnid you're right but that's why the that's why the donington lap isn't in there it is a terrible shame it's not in there but it didn't fit their narrative and the narrative is you know it's it's all the high points of senna's f1 career and there weren't a great deal of high points in for them to to feature from 92 and 93 although yes donington was one of them the, the Where the film works best um, for me is after the accident. They show you r- r- rather too much of Imola. The weekend starts with Rubens Barrichello having a horrific accident, what looks like 180 miles an hour to no miles an hour in about the space of a metre. To this day, I don't know how Rubens Barrichello walked away from that one with barely a bruise. It's terrifying. And then the first fatality, Roland Ratzenberger suffers i think a wing failure wing goes under the car can't steer crashes at extreme high speed mm-hmm. and they choose to show the car slowing to a halt with roland ratzenberger's clearly broken neck lolling in the car it's horrible i watched it for the first time in the cinema sick mm. it's horrible and i wish they hadn't shown that i understand why they did i wish they hadn't um because they wanted to show Senna's reaction, which is not extreme, but he's never seen this before. He's grown up in an era where people don't die in Formula One cars. And so he's watching it on the monitor, very concerned. And then those laps after the safety car, they show the start of the race. They show the crash at the start of the race. And then some laps behind a very, very slow safety car. It's like a Lotus Carlton or something like that, maybe. Not even, maybe not even the Lotus Carlton. It's just an Opal. And it's clearly not quick enough. You know, today's safety cars are extremely high-performance Mercedes-AMG cars, and even they are not quick enough. For Formula One drivers who are perpetually on the radio saying, make it go faster, not realising that the poor safety car driver is going as fast as he safe, safely can. You see the, the whole lap 
after the safety car goes in, Senna's off, you're on board with him the whole time, right until the point where the director cuts. And we are told no more footage exists of the car beyond that point. And there seems like a millisecond where the car stops following the left-hand arc of Tamburello and straightens up. And then cut to more or less the aftermath of the accident, car bouncing off the wall, bits everywhere, Senna not moving. And then they stay with it for a long time. I don't remember the BBC showing this much when I watched it live. Well, it was the first race where the BBC had their own camera and they were not the host broadcaster. So when they saw all the um when they saw all the attention that Senna was getting, they actually cut to their own camera that was pointed I think at the front of the Williams garage. So what was going out on the world feed was what you see in Senna, it was just a helicopter circling while you can see Sid Watkins performing heart massage. Yeah, there's a moment, I think, where either they've moved him into the helicopter that takes him off to the hospital or just before that, and you can see bloodstains on the tarmac. It's very graphic for this kind of thing. And you can hear, the as the helicopter takes off to take him to the hospital, you can hear the crowd applauding which is kind of a nice touch, but the whole thing, thats it's the moment the whole film has been building to because you know the end. And you're desperately hoping that somehow this time it doesn't happen, but it does. Mm. It's after this the film absolutely lands the punches. It's a really well-constructed documentary up to this point, but it's telling a singular narrative, like you say. It's, it's Senna's career, in his own words, glossing over the bad bits. But afterwards, they show the effect it had on Brazil. And it's an outpouring of emotion from an entire country because Senna was a symbol for Brazilians. And I think I've said it to you before, there is not a single sports person on this planet right now that would have a similar effect on a country were they to pass away. Mm, I think you're right. That's where it really lands. And then they have this wonderful end. You think you can't end a documentary on a funeral because those scenes are very sad, brings a tear to even the driest of eyes. And then they go back to an interview while he's in Formula One where someone asks him, what was the most fun you had racing? Who's the best guy you raced against, past or present? And it's that past or present that's the key to the question. Because Senna then goes off back into his karting days racing against a guy called Terry Fullerton because no money. It's just racing for racing's sake. And he really enjoyed racing against him because he was really, really good and he was presumably very hard to beat. So when you did beat him, it's very satisfying. And it's a wonderful note to end what could otherwise have been a really downbeat ending. They managed to find something that is encapsulates what they want to make the documentary about, the love of racing. And it, that's the those, those portions are the bits that really land well. It's well worth seeing. Go in with eyes open, especially if you know more about the story. If you've got relatives who don't know who he is, who've never seen it in Senna race, it's, it's a good potted history introduction to a very, very special racing driver. But for motorsport geeks, you'll, you'll spot the gaps. You'll see the, you'll see the bits that have been left out. But highly recommended nonetheless. Alongside Senna for this podcast, I've chosen the new Netflix documentary F1 Drive to Survive, which actually has a Senna link because one of the producers from Senna and also produced Amy, who set up box to box Films and exec produced this documentary on behalf of Liberty Media, who are now Formula One's owners. 
And in the run-up to the season, I'd heard about it being filmed last year. I saw the trailers in the run-up to this season, and I thought, okay, this is going to be something that is broad and is mainstream and is to try and draw a new audience to Formula One. As somebody who's been watching Formula One for nearly 40 years, probably, oh God, I sound old, it's probably going to be too basic for me, and I was completely wrong. First of all, it's a really high-quality documentary. I don't think that the race feed is problematic, but cutting from the race feed to the stuff that they shoot, you can really tell the difference in quality. They have an amazing ability to get cameras into debriefs, into team meetings, into uh, interviews with drivers where they get them to open up. And what they've done is they must have filmed so much stuff throughout the year that the story has kind of evolved as the themes of the year came to the fore. So this documentary itself is 10-part series. Each one's about half an hour, which is quite a good length to to tell a story within. And also means you can binge watch the whole thing in a reasonable amount of time. Which is what I did. Yeah, it's what I did as well. I binged this in a day, I think. That's impressive. It ha- it does have that kind of let's see what's next, let's see what ne- let's see what's next action to it. What it does is each episode focuses on a particular story or a particular driver or a particular situation, but over the whole series it follows the race calendar. So the first episode is the run up to and the race in Melbourne. The last one is Bahrain, and they pick out a few in between. And it it has to be said up front that they're missing two teams. They're missing Mercedes and they're missing Ferrari. I think Toto Wolff was quoted as saying that they didn't want the distraction because obviously they're going for the championship. And I'm probably fairly sure that Ferrari said, if Mercedes aren't doing it, we aren't doing it either. So the perspective of the whole series becomes slightly odd. What it's not is a race-by-race recap. It's not like the DVD that you buy at the end of the year. It's stories around each race. So the actual result isn't really touched on or who passed who or, or or anything like that. Instead, what you get is an episode where you've got the culmination of Daniel Ricciardo deciding to leave Red Bull and go to Renault, and you've got Renault deciding not to supply Red Bull anymore. So between those two, you've got one episode where at the start of it, neither decision's been made, and you see Daniel Ricciardo talking to his manager you see discussions going on between the Red Bull senior management. You've got this brilliant scene where where they're waiting for the FIA press conference and there's Cyril Abitbu and uh, Christian Horner kind of standing awkwardly outside the building waiting to go in and not quite making eye contact with each other. And they're just in the right place at the right time to, to see these little stories play out. And even the ability to get drivers to open up and the teams to open up to allow them into these situations. The one I was watching the other night in preparation for this in particular was when Force India went bust, spoiler alert, and got bought out by Lawrence Stroll. Now, in order to explain what's going on, they do have some F1 journalists, most notably Will Buxton, who is brilliant, and they they do these kind of talking heads, and they talk to the drivers, and they talk to some of the team personnel, particularly Christian Horner, they will sometimes augment it with that kind of fake commentary where you have 
somebody going, and now we're going into the first session of qualifying. This determines the grid for tomorrow. As though it, nobody's ever sort of said that in live commentary. But you have this situation where you have Vijay Malia attending the British Grand Prix. You have interviews with him at, in his home. You have this backstage moment between him and David Croft where he's saying, uh, well, David Croft's going to be thinking, well, are we going to see you in Belgium? And Vijay Malia's like, you know, absolutely, the team's not for sale, we'll be there, it's all fine. And literally the next card on the screen is like three weeks later and it's him leaving court having been wound up by um, Sergio Perez. And there is a moment where all of this is going on and you have a camera crew from a documentary following in Otmar Safnauer, the team uh, principal, into a staff meeting. And as he's walking in, it's him and the administrator. And he turns to the administrator and says, are we going to make payroll? And has the question about pensions been sorted out? And this is as he's walking in to tell the staff that the team is going into administration. And to have a camera crew at that point... To have Claire Williams in another episode open up and say, sometimes I wake up and I don't know if I'm the right person to do this job. It's it's just amazing to be able to get people to open up like that. And I think it doesn't focus on splitters and downforce and technical regulations and mumbo-jumbo, but it has these really nice human moments. And they're not afraid to show people being funny, you know. There's a moment with Nico Hulkenberg where they're asking what he thinks about Haas and he just absolutely deadpans it to camera going, who are they? They're the American F1 team. There's an American F1 team? Yeah. Oh. And it, it's this stupid moment, but it's just, it absolutely humanises who he is. <laughs> There's an, another one. God bless him. He goes to a, he goes to a Microsoft event in, uh, I'm guessing in Texas, it was around the, the, the American Grand Prix. And it's full of all these little kids in this Microsoft store. And one of them goes up to him and goes, um, how many races have you won? And he goes, in Formula One, none. He's like, really? Yeah. It's like, how many have you won otherwise? Uh, quite a few. And it's this slightly awkward moment where you, it, it just highlights how the, the inequality of F1, that actually only a few drivers actually win a lot, and most of them don't ever win anything, even when you're as good as Nico Hulkenberg. It's also a bit sweary. If you have small kids, there's a bit of kind of effing and jeffing and Daniel Ricardo's improvised raps and his various references to his own scrotum is, is probably not something you want to expose your kids to. Um, not Daniel Ricardo's scrotum. Anyway, um, it is a bit sweary, but again, it's humanising. And, and my God, at this point, do we have to talk about Gunther Steiner? I think it's almost become a cliche, but yes, it's very sweary because of Daniel Ricciardo and Gunter Steiner. Uh, Gunter Steiner is the team boss of Haas F1, the American F1 team, and he's hilarious. He's the standout star of the series because he's brutally honest and he has a strange accent, which seems to come from Austria or Switzerland or France or America, depending on what word he's saying at the time. Uh, he has a very short fuse with his drivers when they do something wrong and he's not afraid to speak his mind and it's those moments like you say it's the moments they, they show that humanise people 
The problem with the Formula One live broadcasts, they can't show that. They can't have a million cameras everywhere. And so you see the professional face, you see the media face, you see the front that drivers put up because they don't really want to talk to the press. And somehow these documentary crews have been able to work their way past that and show some of the real people behind that professional facade. And that's what makes it work so well. I mean, some people like Daniel Ricciardo are pretty good at laughing and joking and generally being themselves both just before a race and in off-the-cuff interviews. But others, I've just come out of a racing car. They've probably had a crap result. You're just going to get the standard platitudes. I'm thinking of Nico Hulkenberg here. You know, if you catch him in a TV pen in an interview after a race, he's probably come seventh. His car isn't good enough to win. He doesn't know what else to say other than, yeah, we did good. You know, I'd like to say thanks to the team. Blah. Whereas this somehow gets underneath their skin and that's what makes it work. It's a brilliant introduction to F1 for people who haven't watched F1. It punches up the drama, probably a little more than it needs to. Um, there's some very effective audio editing to make all of the crashes sound louder and all the engines sound louder. And in fact, everything is just heightened when it comes to the car footage. Well, I think we need to... This is the, the contentious point. Would you say it's better or would you say it's worse? It depends what you're trying to do. If you, if I, if you were to put that over the top of race coverage, then I'd say it's worse. But I know what they're trying to do. They're mm. trying to sell the glamour, the excitement, the drama and the danger. Mm. It works. I don't want to say it's better or worse. It worked for me. I could hear immediately because I'm a nerd and I know what Formula One cars actually sound like, <laughs> that this was some foley artist adding more crashes and turning up the bass on everything to make the cars sound more dramatic and everything sound bigger and better it's every whoosh over every curb and somebody knocks their front wing off and there's this sound of like crunching weetabix and it they have that thing and they do it at the start of the series and it gets progressively less where they all line up on the grid and as the lights come on all the noise drops I think there might even be this sort of faint sort of and then it's just like blink and it's all noise again and I'm just sitting there thinking this is so contrived but I, again I, I absolutely agree with you I think it, it is it is cinematic and it is dramatic even if it is incorrect and it probably just gets my hackles up it's a cliche, but cliches are cliches because they work and they've been used a lot. It's, it's shorthand mm. for conveying drama quickly. Um, I really enjoyed this series. Like I said, I binged it very quickly, one episode after the other, the day I think it was released, because I was curious to see what they'd done. And like you say, you, the standouts, Gunter Steiner is hilarious. I won't even try and do an impression of his voice. But, you know, this, this is on Netflix. If you have Netflix, you can see it for free. I highly recommend you seek it out. Um, they're shooting a second season this season. They are, yep. I have no idea if they've managed to get Ferrari and Mercedes involved. I'd love if they have, because it would be fascinating to get insights from people like Toto Wolff, uh, the team boss of Mercedes, uh, Mario Binotto, team boss of Ferrari because both of them are going through big changes mm. uh, across this season and it'd just be interesting to see the extra perspective of the title challenges in there mm. that's the one thing that's missing for this it doesn't detract from the first series I think the first series works really really well um, are we very interested to see if the second series can work as well or whether this is a one trick pony 
and whether they're just look we can make everything bombastic and we can you know get some sweary guys on there and we'll put out you know we'll do a big job of cutting everything together and I'm pumping up the sound effects or whether they can find new story threads over this season to bring out new personalities to to bring into center stage and I think that the the lack of Ferrari Mercedes for this one is a blessing and a curse because it would be really easy to make the whole series into a title decider everything just builds and builds and builds towards the title which is a very monotonous story what's great about this is that it does highlight some of the other teams and other drivers that don't get as much coverage and you see some different stories that you wouldn't necessarily otherwise have seen but I think because they are limited by the events that obviously go on there are some episodes where it does run into a bit of a lack of drama I mean the Cota episode for example they talk about the conflict between um, I was going to say Jan Magnussen it's not Jan Magnussen Kevin Magnussen and um, Nico Hulkenberg but the culmination of the episode is who's going to come fourth in the Constructors' Championship. And when that's kind of the high point of the episode, that's all the drama's going to be, who's going to come fourth? You think, you're kind of running out of content here. The stakes are lower because yeah. these these guys aren't fighting for the title. They can't. Mm. Formula One's inequality prevents them from fighting for podiums, let alone the title. But it, it is just so important to them, but it's... You're right, it's absolutely just lower stakes and you think a little bit of the grand ambition of Ferrari and Mercedes still with the focus on Haas and still with the focus on Williams and all the other teams and all the other struggles I think could be really interesting and I really hope that they go into this season with their eyes open and just wait for those stories and be able to sort of play out whatever happens whatever happens this year. As Marty said, F1 Drive to Survive is on Netflix. Certainly in the UK, probably other places around the world, you can get a 30-day free trial, which is more than enough time to watch the whole series, probably multiple times. Definitely recommended whether you're an F1 fan or not. So, before we finish, Marty, what, what other content have you seen recently that you think is worth a mention? This is our point in the podcast where we're going to highlight geeky things on YouTube. I think that probably could be the name of the segment, to be honest. <laughs> I saw a video made by a detailer in the US. His name is Larry Kazilla. He has a company called Ammo NYC. He's a, a very well-known uh, YouTube personality now, but he's also a, a car detailer. He washes and polishes and protects cars, uh, and he has his own line of detailing products. And he visited the Honda paint plant in the US where they spray the new NSX. Now this sounds desperately dull, but if you're a car nerd, there's some real joy in here because there are three different levels of paint finish you can get on your NSX. There's like a baseline one, which is you know, two coats of paint and then some clear coat and then some more clear coat. I'm generalizing, I can't remember the details, but he goes over with the Honda Techs each step in the paint process because he wants to understand how thick the paint is on there so that when he's detailing these kinds of cars, how much he's got to work with to remove scratches and blemishes and so on. If you buy the top end paint finish for your Honda NSX, which is something like an $8,000 option, you're not going to see any blemishes because the the level of OCD that the paint team go into to make sure the panel is perfect and the base coat is perfect and the next coat is perfect and any imperfections get sent back. It's a fascinating insight into how a very top level paint finish is achieved and how a massive OEM can produce 
just a flawless finish on their cars and it's very interesting if you are a fan of the kind of the discovery mega factories documentaries where you see how a car is built because this will bring you sort of towards the end of the process the car is mostly built but it shows you in very much tiny ocd obsessive detail how a car is painted which i found really interesting because you know i'm i like the idea of detailing i have ocd it's really worth seeking out it's on youtube i think the title is ammo nyc at the honda paint plant we'll put the link to the youtube video in the show notes but if you're a detailing obsessive uh, you got to see this it's well worth a watch i think for me the video that stands out most recently and i think this is probably the third mention this episode of senna but henry catchpole for carfection talking about senna and the lap of donnington it is a brilliantly shot brilliantly written episode but it's very dense in terms of the amount of information he can impart over a video so they look at the car Senna drove at Donington, which I'm now having a blank on. I think MP4 8. <laughs> I can't remember. So 88 was the 4, so 5 for 89, 6 for 90. <laughs> so no, uh, it must be the 9, unless they had an MP4. Maybe it is the 8. MP4, no. I don't know. Uh, strange McLaren numbering sequences. Maybe they had a year where they reused the same car, or they had a B-spec. True. And I think it was the Ford engine in that one as well, which, which wasn't uh, anybody's first choice of engine that year. But what they do over the course of the episode is that they talk about the car, they talk about the run-up to Donington and, and how it was in the race. They then drive the McLaren Senna, appropriately, from the McLaren factory in Woking all the way over to Donington, and they then recreate the lap, the lap, the opening lap of, of the 1993 European Grand Prix, with Henry driving the Senna into cut with footage of the Grand Prix. And it's a really good retelling of that lap, almost in slow motion, explaining and describing every moment and every movement of the car and where every pass took place. And it, it really, I think, brings to life that lap in a way that just watching it from the outside, you, you, you don't get the same sense. And I think the whole thing, it... it it really is a nice package of everything that went into that lap. There's also, if you watch the, or watch or listen to the latest episode of For the Love of Cars, they actually talk about it as well. And they, they shot all the Donington track stuff in an hour, which you'd never guess. Um, and they've just done a really, really good job of, of putting together one really neat package of new, interesting, original content and... God bless Liberty for actually licensing that footage as well, because I think intercutting between the two, not just having a lap of Donington, but having Henry recreate the lap and have the real footage cut back and forth, I think really just brings the whole thing together and is is just a lovely, lovely piece of, of filmmaking that is something new in addition to everything else that, that, that's gone before. So I highly recommend it. Again, as Marty said, we'll put the link to both of these in the show notes. And that's it for this episode. If you think we've got it right, if you think we've got it wrong, share your thoughts and opinions with us on Twitter at AutoMoviePod or on our AutoMovie Facebook page or email us comments at AutoMoviePodcast.com.